This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Not the night Republicans thought they were going to have. If a red wave is coming, it hasn't come yet. I'm Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland, and this is a special edition of Politics Weekly America. It is just past 4.30am in the UK as we record, 11.30 or past it at night, here in Washington DC as we digest the early results in the midterm elections. And at this hour, as we record, Democrats are breathing a tentative initial Sigh of relief because, so far, the signs of a Republican sweep have not materialised. At this hour, they've made some gains in the House of Representatives, but not enough for us to say or for the broadcast networks to say that they have won control of that chamber, even though almost every prediction said they would. And in a clutch of very closely watched Senate races and governor's races, races that Republicans would be winning handsomely. If a red wave was breaking, Democrats are still very much in the fight. I am currently in a studio in Washington, D.C., joined at my side by my Guardian colleague, senior political reporter Joni Grieve. Hello, Joni. Hi, Jonathan. And elsewhere, we have Chris Scott from the Progressive Political Action Committee, Democracy for America, who is in Detroit, Michigan. Hello, Chris. Hi, great to be with you. And also columnist and longtime contributor to Politics Weekly America, Richard Wolf in New York City. Hello, Richard. Hello, good to be with you. So, as I said, it's tentative at this stage because we've all been burnt before by premature judgments and verdicts. So, it's early days. There are still places, particularly out west, that have barely begun counting. But there are those signs. Uh, a win in a Virginia congressional district for Abigail Spanberger. A lot of people said that will give you an indication of what kind of night it's going to be. In New Hampshire, uh, the Democratic senator there held on and uh, won in that state. John Fetterman in that really closely fought contest in Pennsylvania. He is out in front. And Josh Shapiro, fellow, fellow Democrat, has won the governorship of that state. So putting all those things together... Um, it does seem as if those big Republican gains, and in a way we should say, if they had won big gains in the House, and if we were now saying the House of Representatives is in Republican hands, that would be normal in a midterm election with a Democrat uh, 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 incumbent. So all of those things put together make uh, add up to a picture in which Republicans haven't done as well. 
Let's start with you, Joni. Have Republicans paid what I'm going to call a Trump price? Because a lot of those candidates who have underperformed were Trump-backed candidates. They were even Trump-picked candidates, people he had hand-picked, and they haven't done so well. Give us a couple of those examples, uh, and then just tell me what you, you think, what lesson Republicans might draw from that. Absolutely. Yeah. There have been already a couple of examples of Republican candidates who really leaned into uh, Trumpism and election denialism who have really not performed tonight. One of those candidates is uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano out in Pennsylvania, and he has already been declared the loser of uh, that race. A Democrat, Josh Shapiro, uh, has um, pretty handedly won that one, it appears. And so uh, with that in mind, it seems like those candidates who made uh, that uh, made election lies and uh, Trump is an essential part of their campaign, might not be doing as well tonight as they had thought. That being said, some candidates who Trump did endorse, like uh, Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance, uh, have prevailed tonight. And one of the biggest tests for Trump, Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker, uh, that one is still very much too close to call as we're sitting here. They, uh, He and Democrat uh, Raphael Warnock are separated by about 1,000 votes. And uh, if neither of those candidates gets 50 percent, then we will be heading to a runoff. So that will be another big test for Trump's candidates. And listeners to this podcast know all about that because we had that in January. 2021, a runoff in Georgia. Uh, It was Raphael Warnock who won one of those two contests. So control of the Senate could come down all over again to Georgia. But Richard um, Wolf, what do you think on this point that uh, the Republicans themselves may be starting to draw some conclusions? I just want to read to you a tweet from a, a journalist on the right, a conservative journalist for National Review, said, All the chatter on my conservative and GOP Republican channels is rage at Trump like I've never seen. The one guy he attacked before Election Day was DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, re-elected in a big way tonight, the clear winner. Meanwhile, all his guys are shitting the bed, says the uh, person cited by a senior uh, National Review journalist. Is that going to be your impression of what happens now on the Republican side based on what we know so far? And yes, it's only half the picture. Well, I would love to buy into this narrative. Really, I would. It would make me so happy. But um, I'm afraid it's a bit delusional. Um, there are no non-Trump candidates in the Republican Party. You you could say that there's a clash of character between uh, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, but Ron DeSantis is pretty Trumpy. J.D. Vance is pretty Trumpy. North Carolina was a Trump-backed candidate. All these people have won because because it's Trump's party. There are no non-Trump people out there. You know, there was this person called Liz Cheney. She's a non-Trump person, and she's not actually on the ticket because she didn't win the primary. So I'm afraid, I'm afraid, even as we are uh, maybe, you know, encouraged by the idea that this isn't a blowout and that Democrats have beaten expectations, they have still lost. Democrats are defeated. And so, you know, you can you can beat expectations, you can do better than than the game everyone likes to play. But if you lose an election, you lose an election. And I think Jeremy Corbyn can run that narrative by you for good measure. <laughs> All right, Chris, Scott, where do you stand on this? The, the night isn't as bad as the predictions were saying it would be. And yet Richard Wolf is saying right there that, you know, a loss is a loss. And Democrats definitely have made some losses. Are you in in optimistic or pessimistic mood at this early stage relatively in the proceedings? 
You know, I'm still very cautiously optimistic at this point. Uh, To say that Democrats are losing the night, I think, would be a fallacy at this point. And tonight, uh, we talked about Florida. Yes, very well. Uh, Democrats got have a long way to go uh, into making Florida more of a battleground state. But let's talk about how Democrats uh, picked up a huge win. Uh, in Pennsylvania. Let's talk about how Wisconsin is still too close to call, uh, but another place where Democrats are performing really well. And let's talk about the fact that this was supposed to be a red wave. All the pundits, all of the news stations were saying uh, Democrats were going to get swept away in this uh, midterm election, particularly in the House. And now it's up for debate whether or not Republicans will even uh, pick up the House. Uh, And I I think the biggest story of the night uh, for Democrats and what they're really going to have to look at in 2024 is we have to lean more into progressive candidates. When you're looking at a lot of these House races where uh, Democrats are even having some of their wins right now, they're progressive candidates. They're new American majority type candidates. So can you give us uh, a couple of examples, Chris, just some, some names and some places? First example that uh, pops to mind, Amelia Sykes uh, in Ohio 13th uh, Congressional uh, District. I think of uh, Greg Kasar, who just uh, picked up an open seat uh, down in Texas, uh, 35th Congressional District. And it's still early uh, to see, but uh, right now it's looking pretty good for Jevin Hodge out in Arizona, uh, 1st Congressional District. And would you say that the the more, as it were, moderate or conservative type of Democrat? In fact, why don't we just run this past you, Richard? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Tim Ryan in Ohio, who went very much deliberately for an old school. He was making a big blue collar pitch. I reported from Ohio for this podcast earlier on, uh, you know, earlier on in the campaign, just at the end of last week. Uh, you know, a lot of people were watching that race closely thinking, Will that style, uh, crudely referred to often as the kind of non-woke Democrat, if that will that style prevail? He didn't win, even against somebody quite vulnerable in J.D. Vance. Will people be drawing some conclusions from that, do you think, on the lines perhaps Chris is suggesting? Uh, well, certainly there are a number of moderate Democrats who thought that Tim Ryan um, would show some path to winning in these extremely difficult circumstances for Democrats. And that has proved conclusively not to be the case. Um, on the other hand, look, you, you can cherry pick all sorts of uh, house districts, but in the marquee liberal races, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, at his third attempt, has lost. Stacey Abrams in Georgia has lost. And, and, and it's really hard to find a winning line here. Now, I can come up with all sorts of reasons why. Cost of living is through the roof. Regular folks are not happy with that. That Democrats don't have a winning message on the economy, even as they've managed to support economic revival with some major legislative victories. However, you're running against people at the same time who are fundamentally undemocratic with a small d, who in those circumstances, you have to say, you have to admit what Democrats are up against and, and beating expectations is not the same as winning. So it's hard to find that glimmer of hope in this because you're looking at Donald Trump announcing his presidential campaign next week, possibly earlier, 
and he'll be running against an 80-year-old president with the narrowest, narrowest hold on power. Joni, what about this, um, where where you stand on what you just heard there? On one view, it says, look, an, a midterm year with an incumbent Democratic administration with inflation through the roof, economy really bad, to not lose the House, if that happens, we don't know that yet, but to not be blown away is a big victory. Or do you look at things like those Abrams results in Georgia, the defeat of Stacey Abrams for governor there, and Beto O'Rourke, Richard mentioned, yeah, though, do you take his view that those are signs of a party in trouble? Yeah, I mean, I think that if Democrats are able to hold on to the House, then that will be fairly historic because they did have such a narrow margin going into tonight. And if they were somehow able to uh, prevent um, pretty minimal Republican victories that uh, the Republicans needed in order to take the House, then yes, that would be uh, rather historic. That being said, if uh, Democrats lose the House, then the implications of that are pretty sweeping. What that would mean is that for the next two years, Democrats effectively cannot advance any of their legislative agenda. And at the same time, to Richard's point, you are seeing many election denying candidates win in races that were um, were considered to be for on the most part to be pretty safely Republican. So it's not necessarily a surprise that they're winning, but they are still winning. And that in terms of the long term health of our of American democracy, that could have some pretty devastating implications. Yeah. Um, well, as we're speaking, uh, one of the TV networks is projecting that Kathy Hochul will win re-election as governor of New York. Now, on a normal night, that would be no big deal. That is a solidly Democratic state. You'd expect a Democrat like Kathy Hochul to win. And yet, when the fears were were really coursing through the veins of the Democratic uh, Party, there were people worrying even about that state. Joe Biden went there. Hillary Clinton went there. And, you know, those of us with long memories, including me, do remember a Democratic governor, Mario Cuomo, losing in 1994 to George Pataki. And it was a sign of what back then people didn't call a red wave, but it was one. So, um, Chris Scott, something like that. I mean, you know, as I say, on a normal day, no one would bat an eyelid at Democrats winning in New York. But is that one more sign of uh, uh, that, you know, your more optimistic reading is plausible? Here's the facts. It looks like Democrats are going to have a strong night here in Michigan. Uh, Democrats are performing well statewide in Minnesota. Colorado running against election deniers. You have uh, the Secretary of State uh, just reelected there, and you're holding on to that Senate seat. Maryland, which was a Republican uh, governor seat, you have the first ever Black uh, governor who's a Democrat now taking that seat. Massachusetts, another win for the Democrats. So I think when we're talking about what a win is a win, Democrats have had a very strong night. And especially when we're looking at the congressional uh, outcome, obviously it's still very early, but there is a lot of reasons for Democrats to be cautiously optimistic when so many people, even heading into this election day and we were having great early vote numbers, wrote off Democrats uh, to have any chance uh, with Congress coming in election day. Let me bring up one area which we will probably all agree on was a disaster for Democrats and very good for Republicans, and that is Florida, where, well, will you tell us, Joni, why, why is Florida, you know, giving such delight to Republicans? The numbers are amazing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Because for so many years, Florida was kind of considered to be a quintessential swing state where uh, it really did seem to vacillate between Republican and Democratic wins, uh, depending on the uh, trends of any given year. Florida has definitely trended very much in Republicans' direction in recent years. And tonight, we just saw blowouts at the state level for Republican candidates. You saw Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who is uh, definitely seems to be eyeing a 2024 presidential run. He easily won re-election by, I think the last count was something like a million and a half votes. And you also saw Republican Senator Marco Rubio easily defeat his Democratic challenger, um, Congresswoman Val Demings. And so it really seems like Florida is becoming a solidly Republican state, which could be it could be very damaging for Democrats' prospects, not just in the state itself, but also when you look ahead to future presidential races. That being said, you know, I want to note that as Repub- as Florida is definitely drifting into Republicans' column, other states are also becoming more of toss-ups. It wasn't that long ago that Georgia was considered to be a solidly Republican state. So is I think it becomes a question of, do when it comes to national races, do Democrats sort of write off Florida and decide not really to compete there? It's a possibility, but also that has really negative... Co- uh, could have really negative consequences for Democratic candidates within Florida itself. Yeah, I mean, and it's a very hard thing to win a presidential election when you start by taking 29 electoral votes off the board. It means you've got to rack up wins elsewhere. But the big thing that has caught people's eye is the success of Republicans with the Hispanic vote in that state. So Miami-Dade County, very heavily uh, Hispanic part of the state, went, usually it was just about keeping the Democratic lead down a bit if you're a Republican. This time, actually, DeSantis won uh, that county, and I think Marco Rubio did as well. That suggests, um, Richard, let's start with you on this, something big is going on there that the that a group of people, a community that the Democrats previously relied on as solidly part of their coalition, is it moving? And that could that have big long-term implications? Or is it just a Florida thing? And a lot of people say Florida is sui generis. It's its own thing. It's exceptional in every way. Don't draw any conclusions. Do you think Democrats need to worry about Hispanic votes going the way that the Latino vote has gone in that state of Florida tonight? Uh, yes, they do. But I think the uh, the analysis that, that you have echoed, which is widespread from left and right, um, it, it betrays the problem, which is that uh, there is a Latino community, that it's a monolithic group that is bound together with uniform experiences in similar ways uh, that mirror the African-American community and its vote. It's just not true. And and that basic assumption has been taken for granted for many years, despite the best warnings from uh, Latino political leaders and political strategists. The truth is that what you're seeing in Florida shows the diversity of the Latino and Hispanic vote. Um, You have an influx of Venezuelans who are in particular susceptible to a lot of the misinformation about Democrats being socialists. Right. Um, For obvious reasons. That would turn them off, given their life experiences. Exactly. And uh, in addition to the Cuban vote there, you know, you have some balancing out uh, of um, other voting blocks. But your recent immigrant experience, whether you're Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, it varies. And so understanding the nuance of those different communities is something that has proved beyond the Democratic Party in this cycle. I don't know the Republicans have, have figured it out either, but 
Republicans don't need to win the Latino vote. They just need to shave off some percentage of support to start putting the total vote in Florida in play. And, and that's true around the country. So as long as they're eroding the Democratic margin among Latino voters, they're winning. So, Chris, we absolutely take Richard's point. We've talked about it on this podcast a lot, that the there is no such thing as you know one Hispanic vote. There's a series of very different and varied communities Nevertheless, the communities that were once, some of them, not Cuban-Americans, but others, were often reliably for Democrats. They are less so. There is even some fraying of the African-American vote that's been noticeable. How worried are you by what that, that Florida result says, not just in itself, but as a sort of omen, a portend of what is um, a, a potentially a, a, an additional problem for Democrats? I think the bigger issue that Democrats have to wake up and see is that we have to be more intentional on engaging populations of color. And again, uh, the thing that has always cost Democrats the most is not authentically engaging uh, these communities early and often, uh, taking your base voters for granted. Uh, We know that Republicans have been going after uh, trying to shave off uh, black men as a voting block. Not that they ever think they will win black men, but can we get three, four more percent? And I think you're seeing a similar thing, particularly uh, in how Republicans are targeting Latino men and trying to shave into that uh, population. So I think Chris, just for our just for our listeners not steeped in this, just explain to us because it fascinates me, and we we picked up some of this when we were reporting in Georgia around Herschel Walker. What is the particular fa- appeal, if there is one, to men in you know African American men or Latino men? Because I, I, I've spoken to people who offer different theories about it, and I'd be fascinated to hear your take on what you think it might be. Well, I think we have to be honest. This is still America. Uh, It is still very much a uh, patriarchy-led society here in America. I think any time that you can play uh, to demographics' fears uh, of making them feel marginalized, making them feel like they're not going to get as much attention, that is a powerful thing, as we saw uh, with how uh, Trump did uh, to try to start making making inroads. And I think that is a piece of the playbook that now you're seeing Republicans lean a little bit more into. Well, we're going to talk to you more and the Democrats just take you for granted. So what do you have to lose? So again, I think Democrats have to get back to authentically engaging with these uh, communities again, uh, if we want to be able to consistently rely on them as a voting block, because either one, they're going to start peeling off a little bit more, or two, they're just simply not going to show up at all. Joni, let's talk about another aspect of all of this, which is going to be the impact on, if it all goes as it's currently looking, on the Democratic side about the president. Uh, because you've got Joe Biden there, who everyone was sort of, you know, sh- they were sharpening their pencils, if they're not their knives, ready to write a piece with, and, you know, in some ways a political obituary saying, He's now the lamed up president. It's time he steps aside and announces that he's not going to run again. All predicated on the idea that there was a big red wave. As as we've been saying, it could still come even now in these remaining hours and into the next few days as votes count, particularly in those Western states. So 
is given that that red wave so far has not materialized in the way that people anticipated, what does it do for Joe Biden's standing? Well, I think another crucial piece of that question is the fact that we are also dealing with the uh, likely imminent announcement of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. And if Trump does indeed announce and if he is able to successfully clear the field, which we don't know if he is going to be able to, particularly after tonight, when we, with, we have seen Ron DeSantis's massive victory in Florida, which really gives him a potential argument to uh, challenge Trump, even if he does indeed announce a presidential run. But if Trump does announce a presidential run and it seems like he's going to win the Republican nomination, I think it gives Biden an opening to say, well, I beat him once. Maybe I can do it again. And I think that we could be really looking at the possibility of a 2024 rematch. And the fact that tonight, if indeed the Republican wave doesn't materialize, that probably strengthens Biden's argument. And Biden has said that he intends to run again, assuming uh, you know he always kind of gives the caveat of, uh, you know, you never know whatever elements of fate might intervene. And so but he, he has given indica- every indication that he does, at least at this point, intend to run again. And And I think that if Trump is running again and there's a possibility for a rematch, I think that's going to be hard for Biden to pass up that opportunity. Richard, I'm guessing just based on what what you said in your opening remarks to us when you did mention the 80-year-old president, he's going to turn 80 in a couple of weeks. I'm guessing that what you just heard from Joni would sink your spirits a little bit. You think Democrats need to do something different from that and perhaps better than that. I mean, look, if you're Joe Biden or one of the Biden inner circle, you could make the case for him running again, no matter what happened tonight. The question isn't, what does tonight tell us about a president's prospects for re-election in two years' time? What really matters is, what are the underlying electoral forces here? What do the candidates, the likely candidates look like? What kind of strength does the incumbent have? Is it even a time for an incumbent? And I think, honestly, any incumbent would struggle in two years' time with inflation the way it is. Any incumbent would struggle with with surviving what is an a, a wave after wave after wave of change elections for most of the last two decades and in particular an incumbent would struggle if you're in your 80s and you're visibly slowing so i, I think this is a really tough situation but i think there's almost no chance that biden does the right thing and steps aside so we are probably looking at a rerun which will be painfully close given the high stakes. And when, when you say no chance, first of all, why do you say that? And second, isn't it possible that his hand could be forced and there will be a Democratic challenger? You know, Jimmy Carter was a Democratic incumbent president who looked weak and Ted Kennedy challenged him. It can happen to a sitting president. Or do you just rule that out even as a possibility? I, it could happen that there's a challenger. I think it's just the party will rally to the sitting president. I think it's very hard to force their hand. Um why do I think he is going, he's determined to run again? Because he's Joe Biden, because he spent most of his life running. It's like saying, well, Prince Charles become King Charles. That's what he's been doing for most of his life. So he's not going to back down on that. He's, he's lived for this moment. He thinks he's good at it. He's actually got a credible legislative record. But he is not the same man he was two years ago. And we have to be honest about that. Yeah, just as we're speaking, uh, the Democrats have picked up a gain of a seat in Ohio um, with Greg Landsman uh, winning as a Democrat one of those districts. So that offsets some of those gains that um, Republicans have been making in Florida. And uh, and Joni, you've got news of another 
result. Yes, and it seems like uh, a Democratic candidate has also picked up a seat in North Carolina. So, um, it, and it also appears that at least a one network, uh, NBC, is um, has indicated they do not intend to call uh, control of the House tonight. So it is actually becoming a much closer race than a lot of people expected. Yeah, and even people who were pretty cautious in their predictions were saying, partly I know this because we were talking about what position we would be in tonight. They said by midnight you would know uh, control of the House, and that's because they thought Republicans would have gained the House. Joni? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, to note that in 2018, when Democrats uh, saw a wave election and uh, picked up dozens of seats when Donald Trump was in office, I believe that call came sometime at around uh, in the 10 to 11 o'clock hour. So at this point in 2018, the House had already been called. And it changed hands in that case. Indeed, yeah. To the Democrats. Chris, let's just bring you in on this. I mean, I I think based on what Richard was saying, I think he must be right that there is great strength if Biden wants to stay and to, to run again, because he can say, look, previous Democratic presidents who you guys all idolize and think of as heroes got absolutely walloped. Uh, in midterm elections. Barack Obama lost over 60 seats in his midterms in 2010. Uh, Bill Clinton was uh, on the, you know, drowned by a Republican wave in 1994, which swept away Democratic control of the House. If we're at the stage where it's almost, it's, as Joni just said, too close to call whether Republicans gain the House at all, surely, despite his age and, and, and even the infirmity that Richard's referring to, he gets to call the shots, Joe Biden. His authority will be strengthened on the Democratic side. And even progressive voices, younger voices will not be able to say, look, step aside. It's time for someone new. What we haven't talked about, which I think is going to be the bigger centering issue and probably galvanizing issue heading into 2024, uh, is I think this night has been a reprimand on Republican extremism uh, from overreaching with the Dobbs decision, particularly what Republicans did uh, when it came to a woman's right to choose. I think that is still very much going to be a focal point in deciding, you know, where this nation goes, even heading into 2024 and what they want out of a candidate. Look, uh, what that Dobbs decision did was really galvanize uh, what a lot of folks were saying was a sleeping electorate uh, of enthusiasm of Democratic voters and got everybody to wake up and rally around this issue of we do not want to go back in this country. And so when we have this conversation about Donald Trump, he still is representing taking us back to a time that voters very much on this night said that they do not want to go back to. So whether or not Joe Biden runs again or not, uh, I think we are still looking more at this extremism and do Republicans continue to overreach? And if that continues to happen, I don't think it matters who the Democratic nominee is in 2024. I'm glad you mentioned abortion there, abortion rights, because I want to ask you, Joni, to what extent do you think the answer to the question of how, again, tentative, qualified, because we don't know the full picture, but to the extent the Democrats seem to have survived what could have been a thorough wipeout, and it doesn't look like it's that, to what extent the they were able to survive these economic headwinds that a lot of people thought were going to cause a wipeout, uh, sky high inflation, gas prices, petrol prices through the roof, um, you know, real a real hit in terms of people's uh, cost of living. 
to what extent were they able to withstand that? Because women voters in particular, a lot of young voters, seem to have been mobilised by that decision of the Supreme Court in the summer to overturn half a century of constitutionally protected, at the federal level, right for a woman to have an abortion. Yeah, I think that will be one of the most critical questions uh, going uh, going forward as we get more data from uh, the results. And there have been some signs in the early exit polls that seem to, which again, we always we always have to say with the exit polls to take them with a heavy grain of salt because they can only tell you so much about the uh, electorate. But there do seem to be some glimmers that there were, uh, while many many voters said that the economy was the issue for them, there was a substantial sh- share that said that both abortion rights and the future of democracy were really important considerations for them. So it seems like and, you know, I think it's also important to consider that you know, voters always they always cast their ballots with many issues in mind at once. Right. Certainly many the majority of voters say that the economy is not heading in the heading in the right direction right now. But it seems like, again, if Republicans are not able to to pull off a uh, later in the night uh, wave election, it does seem like it's like a, a higher share of voters decided that some of those uh, that concerns about losing some of those rights, whether it be abortion or voting rights or, uh, you know, attacks on democracy might have uh, animated them enough to vote for Democrats, despite their apprehension about the economy right now. So, Richard, I'm interested to know what, what I, again, I'm guessing, but I would have thought that that would be in some way gratifying to you because they're in the what I'm going to call the pre-mortem you know a lot of these analyses that appeared when people were assuming there was going to be an absolute democratic you know bloodbath tonight there were people saying one of the reasons is they should have talked about bread and butter economic issues and not gone on things like abortion rights and the threat to democracy instead Democrats did push the threat to democracy message Joe Biden made a speech about it last week and for the rule reasons Joni has just mentioned, it seems as if actually that may have worked a bit and protected them against what otherwise would have been some really difficult economic turbulence and hurt their prospects. That suggests actually people are moved by the threat to democracy that you were talking about right at the start. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that was particularly true in a midterm election without a singular focus to drive turnout. So enthusiasm gap that normally rest with the party out of power were pretty much equal um, throughout this and and certainly took a turn when the Supreme Court intervened in the egregious way it did to deny women's right to choose. So um, I think that's right. I think uh, those kinds of issues nationalized this very disparate bunch of contests that the midterms represent. I don't think it's right to say, however, that that will still be the case in two years' time. You know, you're looking at more uh, aggressive action from central banks around the world to get inflation under control. That means more economic pain without inflation actually suddenly dropping off a cliff. And, And so you have to think two years out, will these issues resonate in the same way? Will the candidates resonate in the same way? So... There's nothing that's going to be fixed that, you know, because it worked tonight, it's going to work in two years' time. It just doesn't work that way. I'm going to call that your closing thought, Richard, because time is against us. Uh, Chris, why don't we have from you a closing takeaway again at this early stage? We're going to, you know, there's going to be more numbers to pour over. But from what you've seen so far, what lessons or takeaways do you take? Yeah, so again, I remain cautiously optimistic on the wins 
uh, that Democrats had this night. One, I think, uh, is definitely a victory for the progressive wing of the party. Uh, we saw a number of young black and brown candidates uh, get elected to Congress, uh, get elected uh, statewide as well. And so we have to feel good about uh, where the future of the party lies. I think the biggest lesson for Democrats is we cannot run away from how our party is rapidly continuing uh, to change. We have to lean into the messaging that resonates with our base, making sure that we're good on education, make sure that, that people know that you're going to fight for them every day. It's okay if we lose some battles, but people want to know that you're going to fight for them even if you lose those battles. So I think as long as Democrats lean into that messaging, uh, the future is still very bright uh, heading into 2024. And a closing thought from you, Joni Grief. I think that as we get more results, something that I'm really interested to, to see is how much ticket splitting happened tonight. And, you know, I think that is a really uh, something that we haven't talked uh, touched on much yet. But you see in certain rec- in certain states like uh, Georgia, you see um, Governor Brian Kemp is, you know, was declared the winner there. Uh, but at the same time, you have, you know, uh, the uh, Senate race remaining very close. Similarly, you're seeing that in uh, in states like New Hampshire, where they're sitting uh, Republican Governor won, but uh, Senator Maggie Hassan uh, won re-election as uh, Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan won re-election as well. And so I'm curious to see in the days to come as we get more results in is if there were a fair number of voters who decided that uh, for maybe some some of the more extreme Republican candidates that they decide not to support them instead to vote for the Democrat. But maybe if the they thought that the uh, incumbent governor was um, not quite in that vein, then maybe they chose to cast their vote that way as well. So I think that will be something because we have not seen much ticket splitting in recent elections. So that's something that I'm keeping my eye on as we get more results. It has been fascinating to see exactly how that split. And often it was the case that the late, I'm not going to say not Trumpy for the reasons Richard's uh, Wolf said before, but some the lesser Trumpy person. So Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, does much better than the more Trumpy J.D. Vance. And then Brian Kemp, the you know the, the governor who can boast that he stood up to Donald Trump a couple of years back when Donald Trump was hunting for votes in Georgia. Uh, he did so much better than uh, just on the numbers we have now, Herschel Walker, who was much more Trump's favourite. So it's just an example of how that ticket splitting works. There is so much more still to be decided. Nevada, a lot of eyes on that very close race. That could dis- determine who holds the Senate. There are big results to come out of Arizona, where a very Trump uh, endorsed candidate is running for governor there. And of course, Georgia remains on a knife edge. And the big question of who will control the House of Representatives. All of those things up for grabs. And another drama bubbling along, which is question marks over the vote. There will be challenges. There could be uh, people claiming that the election has been, especially if it doesn't go Republicans' way, has been somehow rigged or even stolen. We all witnessed that two years ago. Plenty of candidates ready to make those arguments again now. Luckily, we will be able to pick up all those threads in 12 hours from now with another podcast uh, where we'll have a new set of guests to talk through that hopefully fuller picture, clearer picture. So do check. We will be dropping into your feeds in just about 12 hours time. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Chris Scott in Detroit, Richard Wolfe in New York and Joni Grieve here in Washington, D.C. with me. Our producer is Danielle Stevens, the executive producer, Jagruti Dave. I'm Jonathan Friedland. 
Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.